As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, which is our sermon text for this evening. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 23. We're considering this evening that, uh, that wonderful poem or hymn uh, that, that Paul places in the middle of the first chapter of Colossians, a hymn about the preeminence of Christ, the rule of Christ over all things. And we'll begin our reading in verse 13 of Colossians chapter 1, and pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that is God the Father, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the first, or he is the beginning, excuse me. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we're thinking this evening about uh, Colossians chapter 1 and about Lord's Day 13 of our catechism. And as a reminder, we're in that part of the catechism that explains the Apostles' Creed, the various articles of the Apostles' Creed. And our catechism calls the Apostles' Creed a summary of the gospel, all those things which are a summary of all those things which are necessary for a Christian to believe. Particularly this evening in Lord's Day 13, we're thinking about two articles of the Creed, the article that says that Christ is the only begotten Son of God and he is our Lord, those two articles. These articles are about the divinity of Christ and about his lordship. Also, these articles tell us how Christ has won this lordship and what the implications of these things are for us. What are the practical implications of these articles, of these doctrines? 
both the catechism and Paul in this passage from Colossians show how practical these articles are. In the Colossians passage that we read and from Colossians 1, Paul weaves together many of the same themes that we find in Lord's Day 13 of the Catechism. He shows how incredible and awesome these doctrines are, but at the same time, how much bearing they have on us as Christians for our salvation, for the way that we ought to live. Verses 13 and 14, the verses that we began with in Colossians, are an introduction we can think of to the rest of this passage. And just as the Catechism called the Apostles' Creed a summary of the gospel, here is a wonderful summary of the gospel in verses 13 and 14 of our passage. That God has delivered his people from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his Son. The language that Paul uses here to talk about God's deliverance of his people is the same language that's used to talk about God bringing his people out of Egypt in the Exodus. Israel was enslaved in bondage to the kingdom of darkness, of Pharaoh, the kingdom opposed to God and to his people. And God came with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and redeemed them and brought them out of this kingdom of darkness and brought them into the promised land, into his kingdom. And now Paul is saying that God has accomplished the same thing for these believers, for these Colossian believers. But this time it's not Pharaoh and his army, but it's what these It's what these powers of darkness pointed to, the ultimate kingdom of darkness, which is opposed to God and his kingdom. All the powers of sin and evil and darkness are what they have been delivered from. In verse 14, Paul tells us that the way God has done this is through his Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness. And when Paul mentions the redemption and forgiveness which we have in the Son, This launches him into this poem that we have in verses 15 to 20, this incredible celebration, this incredible uh, teaching about Christ and who he is, preeminent in everything. Paul answers the question, who is this son? In whom do the Colossians have redemption and forgiveness? How has he won this redemption and forgiveness? And then once this poem, this hymn is over in verses 21 and 23, He answers the question, what does this mean for the Colossians? What does all this teaching about Christ mean for them, practically speaking? So we'll consider these verses in Colossians 1 this evening, and we'll consider along the way, especially how they support the teaching of Lord's Day 13 of our catechism, and we'll consider them in three points. First, in verses 15 through 17 of our passage, the preeminence of Christ in creation. And then in verses 18 through 20, the preeminence of Christ in new creation. And finally, in verses 21 through 23, the purpose of Christ's preeminence. So our three points, preeminence in creation, preeminence in new creation, and the purpose of preeminence. Our first point, preeminence in creation. As Paul begins to answer this question, who is this son in whom the Colossians have redemption? in whom they have forgiveness of their sins. In verse 15, 
Paul says the first thing you need to know about this son is that he is the image of the invisible God. And this image language to speak about Christ is really interesting. It's not it's, it's one of the less common titles that we have for Christ in the New Testament. We only get this a few times in the New Testament to talk about Jesus. There are various other titles which are much more common. Son of God, Son of Man, the Christ, the Anointed One. All of these are more common. But this title image communicates quite a profound truth. This title for Christ communicates an awesome truth about the second person of the Trinity. Fundamentally, just from a definition perspective, an image is something which represents or resembles something else. So if you go to the ocean and bring your camera or bring your phone and take a picture of the ocean, that image which you've taken represents or resembles the ocean. And specifically, here in Colossians, the language that Paul is using, the concepts that he is picking up on here with the um, by calling Christ the image, are concepts from Genesis. In Genesis 1, we read that uh, Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God. And then in Genesis 5, we read that Adam fathered a son, Seth, in his, in his image and likeness. We get the same exact language there. And so what we learn from these parallels is that image language is sonship language. To be in the image of someone is to be a son. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Many people have said, and uh, I think it's probably true, that in many ways I resemble my, my dad, my father, that I have some of the same mannerisms as him, that I have a similar build as him. And so you might say that I image him, I resemble and represent him. Adam was created an image of God at creation. This means that at creation, he was created a son of God, created to resemble and represent his creator. And now we get the same image language here in Colossians to talk about Jesus. But of course, where Adam was a created son, Paul makes very clear in this passage that the son is not himself created, that he is himself God. And so, when we talk about Jesus as image, this means that he is the very Son of God, the eternal and perfect image of the Father. He shares the same essence as the Father, and so he eternally and perfectly resembles and represents the Father as his perfect image and Son. Another way of talking about this relationship between the Father and the Son is an eternal begetting. This is also sonship language, that the son is begotten from the father. And this is older language we don't use as often, but it's a term that specifically refers to the activity of a father with respect to children. A mother gives birth to a child, a father begets a child. And this is what our catechism says about Christ following the Apostles' Creed, that Christ is the only begotten son of God. Our catechism says that he is the eternal Son of God. He is eternally begotten. In other words, he is always the Son. There was never a time when the Father was not the Father and the Son was not the Son. This is an eternal relationship, even outside of time. He is the natural Son of God, our catechism tells us, begotten from the essence of the Father, 
sharing in the same divine essence and nature eternally. And so from what Paul says here and from what our catechism says, it's clear that Christ is the Son of God, is the image of God in an utterly unique way. There's no one else who eternally and perfectly images the Father, who is eternally begotten from the Father, who shares in the Father's essence in this way. Of course, the Holy Spirit shares in the same divine essence, but he, we talk about the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the Father and the Son, a different relation of origin. Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. The Nicene Creed gives one of the most beautiful expositions of this truth, and it's a little more expansive than the Apostles' Creed, so I'll read just a part of it for us here. It says, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, or we might say God from God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And this is the same truth that Paul is getting at here with this language of image, that Christ is the eternal and natural Son of God. And it's really amazing. This is the way he begins. He says, do you want to know who this Son is in whom you have redemption and the forgiveness of your sins? This is the first thing that you should know. He's the image of the invisible God. That's incredible. Paul then goes on to say that he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that he's the first created uh, creature, we just talked about the fact that Paul clearly does not believe this. No, firstborn is a title of prestige, of excellence. It's a title of preeminence. The firstborn in the ancient world was the one who received the double portion of the inheritance. This title means that Christ, as the eternal Son of God, is preeminent over creation. He is Lord over creation. And in verse 16, Paul tells us the reason why Christ is the firstborn, is preeminent over creation. He says that the Father created all things through him and by him. In other words, he's the creator along with the Father. But it's not only because he's the creator, not only created through him and by him, all things were also created for him, Paul says. In other words, the Son of God is the goal of creation. He's the end of creation. All things are created for his glory, Paul is telling us. He is the beginning and the end, the cause of creation and its goal, its purpose. Notice the comprehensive language that Paul uses here, all things, things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things. This preeminence, this lordship of Christ over creation is utterly comprehensive. There is nothing which falls outside the scope of his lordship, of his rule. And this is the one through whom the Colossians have redemption. Now, verse 17 and the first sentence of verse 18 are kind of a transition portion of this poem, of this hymn. They fall in the middle and they form a transition between the first and the second half. Paul says first in this transition portion that Christ is before all things. 
And really, when he says that Christ is before all things, he's summarizing what he's said in the first part of this poem. He's before all things in terms of time because he exists eternally. And therefore, he's before all things in terms of rank. He existed before them. He created all things. He's Lord over all creation. The second part of verse 17 falls right in the center of this poem. It forms kind of a hinge between the first and the second half. Where Paul says that in him, in Christ, all things hold together. In other words, he upholds all things. He, all things subsist in him. He governs all things. The, the reason that the planets continue to revolve around the sun and that the earth continues to rotate on its axis and that you and I continue to take breath at every moment in a very real way is because the Son of God is upholding and sustaining his creation, governing it at every second. He is the one through whom everything was created, for whom everything was created, and he is also upholding and governing it, moving the creation toward its ultimate goal, his glory and the salvation of his people. This was the goal from the beginning. As Pastor Daniel reminded us this morning, Adam could have earned eternal life with God, but he failed. But the sun is still moving creation toward this goal in spite of humanity's failure. And this is why Paul moves to talk about the church then as he finishes this transition to the second part of the, of the poem. Thus far, everything he said has been about creation in general. All things are through the sun. All things are for the sun. All things are upheld by the sun. But it's especially for the sake of his church that he upholds and rules all things, moving them toward their final end. Christ is the head, Paul tells us, and the church is his body. He created all things. He rules all things, but creation is not called his body. It's the church. It's his people which are called his body. He has a special relationship to the church, in other words. We sometimes think about, and they thought in the ancient world as well, about the head as controlling the body, as ruling the body in a sense. It's, the, it's where our thoughts are. It's also the body's source of life, where the unity of the body comes from, we might say. And this is, these two things are true of Christ as the head of the church as well. He is the ruler, the head over the church, and he is also the church's source of life and unity. We find our unity and our confession of Christ as Lord. And now in the second half of this poem, the second part of verse 18 through verse 20, Paul follows the same pattern that he established in the first half. And what he's showing us by doing this is that the same son, the same, the same second person of the Trinity, the same eternal image who is Lord over all creation is also Lord over the new creation. And this brings us then to our second point, the preeminence of Christ in new creation. Paul started, recall in the first half of this poem, by saying that 
Christ is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. And now he says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The same way as he is the beginning of creation. He existed before it and all things were created through him. And therefore he was preeminent and Lord over creation. He is the beginning of the new creation and is therefore Lord and preeminent over it. He's the firstborn from the dead, Paul says. And this is specifically referring to the resurrection of Christ when he inaugurated the new creation, when he himself became the first member of the new creation, receiving a glorified, resurrected body and began the renewal of all things. Paul says that the result of Christ's lordship over the new creation through his resurrection is that in everything he might be preeminent, both in creation and in the restored creation which he is bringing about. The reason that he's preeminent, Paul says, is that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, he is the God-man. He is the incarnate, enfleshed, eternal image of God. He is true God and true man. And this is why he has preeminence in both creation and new creation. Creation, as we talked about, because he's the creator. And new creation, not only as the eternal son and image of God, but also as the perfect human image of God, as the last Adam, as the image, the true image which Adam failed to be. Adam couldn't do it. Israel couldn't do it. And so the eternal son said, I myself will do it. I will come and redeem my people. In verse 20, Paul tells us that this creation, the same creation which Adam plunged into sin and misery and darkness, the same creation which was created through and for this eternal son, this eternal son came as the last Adam to save to renew, to reconcile, to restore, to bring peace, to bring light into the darkness. Again, we get universal language here with this reconciliation of Christ. In the first part of the poem, it was all things were created through him. And now Paul says all things, things in heaven, things on earth, are reconciled through him. There's nothing excluded from what he created, and there is nothing excluded from what he is reconciling. It's the whole created universe which was created for his glory, which he is upholding and directing toward that end. His glory in the renewal and the reconciliation of all things. And Paul says that God, through Christ, effected this reconciliation at the cross. This renewal, this peace. Reconciliation is a war and peace metaphor that Paul uses. When two armies are bitterly fighting against one another and they make peace with one another and those that were formerly enemies become friends, these two armies have been reconciled to one another. The enemies have become friends. This is what Paul is talking about here, that we were enemies with God and friends with the devil, with the kingdom of darkness. But at the cross, 
Christ paid the price to redeem us from sin and from the devil, to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness, to bring us into his kingdom. This price that Christ paid was his own blood, dying, the penalty which sin deserves, death. This is what our catechism is talking about in question and answer 34. It says, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, Christ has delivered us and purchased us from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be his very own. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased with Christ's blood. And so now we belong to him. We live under his lordship. We bow the knee to Christ, to the one who has created us and to the one who has redeemed us. We are at peace with God because of this reconciliation of Christ. Christ's enemies, those who oppose his kingdom, those who do not bow the knee willingly to him, the kingdom of darkness, they will also be at peace with God. This is a cosmic reconciliation that Paul is talking about here. Nothing is excluded from it. But the question is whether it will be willingly or unwillingly. Through his cross and his resurrection, Christ has won a decisive victory over the kingdom of sin and darkness, all the forces which are opposed to him. Paul says in Colossians 2 that God, through Christ's death and resurrection, has disarmed the powers and authorities and brought them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God made peace through Christ's cross, and he will make peace with all things, whether willing or unwilling. And so now, through his resurrection and ascension, Christ is ruling and reigning, both as Lord of creation and as the Lord of the new creation. As we sang in Psalm 110, he's ruling now in the midst of his enemies, those enemies that were defeated through the cross and resurrection and will be destroyed ultimately when Christ returns and brings the new heavens and the new earth in all their fullness. He is even now upholding all things, moving them towards their created end to glorify him through the salvation of his people, through dwelling with his people in the restored new creation. And in this age, it's the church. It's Christ's body where we see the powers of the age to come already at work. It often looks foolish to the world, but this is where God is bringing people from death to life through his word and spirit. A sinner who is brought from death to life, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, is a new creation, belongs to the new creation. This is where, as pilgrims in this world, the spirit nourishes us and feeds us on the, bo- in, on the body and blood of Christ, giving us a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will enjoy with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. In the final verses, then, of this passage, as Paul has finished this incredible poem about the preeminence of Christ, about his lordship over all things, this age and the age to come, Paul turns to speak directly to Christ's body, to his church. He's told them who this son is in whom they have redemption. He's told them how he has won this redemption. And the answer he's given is kind of incredible. 
But now he tells them, and he tells us, what is the meaning of all of this? What does this mean practically? What is the purpose of this great cosmic renewal and reconciliation which Christ is bringing about? Which he is moving all things toward, which will culminate in a restored and renewed creation. And so then this brings us to our third and final point, the purpose of preeminence. In verses 21 and 22 of our passage, Paul largely repeats in some ways what he's just said. That Christ has, that God through Christ has effected a reconciliation at the cross through the death of Christ. But there's an important difference here. Paul's not just talking generally about the reconciliation of all things now. He's talking directly to Christ's people, to the Colossians, directly to Christ URC and Santee. This is for you personally, Paul is saying. You were once alienated, once strangers to Christ, far off. In fact, even hostile in your intentions and in your mind. Actively warring against God. This is not a pretty picture which Paul paints of a life outside of Christ. It's a picture of total enslavement to sin and the devil. But now, he says, through his death, Christ has reconciled you to God. You were an enemy at war with him, and now you are a friend. You are adopted sons and daughters of God for the sake of Christ, as question and answer 33 says in our catechism. You belong to him. You are a member of his kingdom. You are a member of the new creation. Christ is your head. And where the head goes, the body must follow. If Christ has been raised to glorious resurrected life, you will follow as well. You must follow as well on that last day. Paul tells us then the reason that Christ, as the head and Lord of all things, has reconciled us. It's in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God on the last day. This language that Paul is using here, this language of holy and blameless and above reproach, is taken from the sacrificial system in Israel. In order, to, in order for a sacrifice to enter the temple, it needed to be holy and blameless and above reproach in order to be worthy of coming before God, of entering to his presence. These words are all, in a sense, getting at the same idea. That the goal, the purpose of Christ's making peace, of his redemption, of his reconciliation, is that on the last day, we would stand before God as acceptable sacrifices. That we would be fit to enter into his heavenly temple, the new heavens and the new earth. This is the purpose for which you were redeemed, for which you were brought under Christ's lordship, is that in order, in order that you might be made perfect, the one who is eternally the image of the invisible God, who is Lord over all creation, also became Lord over the new creation in order that you might be perfect, in order that you might dwell with him in peace, in perfection, in glory, forever. 
And as those under Christ's lordship, Paul says that what's required of us is to continue in our faith. Our faith, he says, is grounded in the hope of the gospel. And if we cling to this hope, if we do not shift from this hope, our faith will be stable and steadfast. We will be acceptable offerings on that last day. Christ will present us before his Father. This hope is what our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal image and Son of God, the last Adam, has won for us through his death and resurrection. Eternal life in his kingdom, the new creation. He is already exalted in heaven, ruling and reigning over all things. And if you are trusting in Christ today, you have been reconciled to God. You are a friend of God. Through the Spirit, you are united to Christ. You belong already to the new creation. You can have sure confidence that just as your head, Jesus Christ, has already entered into that glorious resurrected life, you will follow. When he returns, when he renews all things, when he destroys all of his enemies, when the dwelling place of God is with his people, when peace and justice are established in all the earth, This is the great and glorious hope which you have. Cling to this hope today, brothers and sisters. Trust in the one who is preeminent in everything, Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, what a wonderful truth it is that although we belonged to the kingdom of sin, and of the devil hating one another and hating you. You have reconciled us to yourself through your Son, your eternal image, through whom and for whom everything was created. Thank you that this eternal image became the last Adam, not only the perfect divine image, but the perfect human image also, in order that he might renew us through his Spirit in the image which Adam lost and present us perfect before you on the last day so that we might enter into your heavenly temple, the new creation. Thank you that through union with Christ, we already belong to this new creation, and we have the sure and steadfast hope that where our head has gone, we, his body, will follow. Please continue to strengthen us in our faith in this great and glorious hope until Christ returns. Amen. As a song of response, please stand and let's sing to this great Redeemer, which we have, our Lord Jesus Christ, I greet thee, who my sure Redeemer art, number 282.
people of God, as we go forth from this place, receive now the blessing of our triune God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. People of God, go in peace.